Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. And James, should I call it the DigiDay Award-nominated Waters Wavelength Podcast? I think you should call it the DigiDay Award Finalist Podcast, actually. Finalist. Finalist. With only two others, James. And who are those two others? That would be the Sunday Times and the Huffington Post. (laughs) So obviously we're going to win. But, you know, as I've been telling everybody... You know, if you ain't listened to this, then you are missing out on the very best conversation about financial technology and the wholesale capital market space. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this is, you know, it's niche, but it's 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 expansive, too. You know what I'm saying? That's the good stuff, man. We like capital G and a capital S. <laughs> exactly. So I do apologize for the sound quality as I am down in Raleigh on vacation. James is at the office suffering. So uh, yeah, it might sound a little bit different than normal. It is, yeah, but look, this is how you get into the final stages of the Digital Podcast. Even when you're on vacation, you call in to do it, man. My ball superheroes wear capes, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So so the purpose of this, we will do it where I, I when I go away on vacation, I will check my emails here and there to make sure there's nothing burning. But other than that, I don't read any of the stories. I don't read anything like that. You know, so James is going to kind of fill me in on some of the things that I've missed. So I'm ready when I get back in on Monday. And then we are going to play a snippet of the the webinar uh, that James hosted on the Consolidated Audit Trail. We'll get to that in a minute. James, biggest news this week. What's happening? Yeah, I mean, it's very funny that you managed to pick a... Uh we picked the week to on holiday that we actually went to press, so, uh, so thanks for that. But uh, I'll catch you up. No worries. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the big news this week uh, across the pond uh, was Traytech, the big sort of, I guess, kind of the biggest mm-hmm. European expert of its kind. Um, so, yeah, what happened there? A lot of people being quite shirty about Mifid 2, I guess. Um, so a lot of exchange. Being quite what? Shirty about Mifid 2. What does that mean? Uh, being quite terse about it and quite sort of uh, quite negative, I guess, uh, but outwardly so and irritably, I think it's probably the best. Okay, shirty. Okay, shirty. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> God, Tony. Uh, <laughs> so we had a we had a story from Hamad Ali, our new reporter, um, who quoted a number of exchange executives, uh, Mark Hemsley at CBO, and. Uh, Chuck from the London Stock Exchange Group as well, talking about RTS 27. Uh, RTS 27 is the requirement that venues publish reports on how execution quality was in their venues. Um, I think they have to do it quarterly. And essentially, mm-hmm. the exchange executives are saying, well, look, I mean, every exchange is going to publish one saying it was the best in the entire industry, nothing went wrong, um, this is all great. And the guy from the LSE was just like, yeah, I mean, and also, you know, the frequency with which they come out and the time lag means they're not going to be essentially of use to anyone. So this is uh, exchange execs saying that exchange reports are going to be effectively useless, uh, which is great. Okay. So, yeah. Yep. Useful, have, useful, useful, useful use of regulation. Indeed. Uh, and then on the regulatory front as well, Virtue was uh, was on point, the, the electronic training shop. <laughs> um, I think Doug Seifo launched a bit of a broadside against uh, not only Mifid 2, but specifically the French regulator for its fine, um, saying that they didn't understand the concept of market making and uh, they were kind of, you know, dragged them on the coals for something that they didn't do wrong. Uh, and then he was banging on about how, um, you know, retail investors have never had it so good and how 
method two is a pointless regulation and the rest of it. Um, so we're actually going to have a story coming out on that today. Uh, this is Friday, obviously. Okay. Um, that's being edited now. Well, it's not being edited now because I'm on the call, but uh, it will be edited by the time that this goes <laughs> up. Um, Let me ask you this, because, so, forget my ignorance on this, but, so you have RTS 27, because I know that Josephine Gallagher, a uh, reporter in the UK, uh, wrote up a feature that I believe went live this week about RTS 28, is that correct? And yeah. how then are those two kind of connected? Well, RTS 27 and RTS 28 collectively deal with best execution, so RTS 27 on the venue side. RTS 28 is uh, a requirement for brokers to list the top five execution venues they use to execute client orders. And not just brokers, but also um, SIs and market makers as well. Um, so Joe's feature was actually really interesting. It was talking about how that seems really simple on the surface, just listing like, kind of, okay, which, what were the top five venues you executed that in terms of volume, but actually, when you get into the thick of it, it's very complicated, especially if you're operating across asset classes, especially if you have multiple market makers, especially if you have um, different types of orders, they differentiate between sort of p passive and aggressive algorithms and that kind of thing as well. Uh, so it's actually a bit of a technology nightmare. As these people are wanting to say, let's bear in mind, with this massive pinch of soul that always comes around every time people go, oh, we can't possibly you know, comply with this regulation because it's difficult and it involves technology and I hate it. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the brokers are doing that again. Uh, and as was just saying, would it be fair to say that there's more use that will be gained out of that report than the 27 report? Well, I think, yeah, they're t targeting two different um, sectors, sure. really. I mean, you know, I guess for the end user, RTS 28 is more interesting because it's showing that the firms have to show how they comply with their best execution policies and how they gain the best price for you and executing the orders, not just sending it to their mates who has a systematic internalizer and can execute against his own book. They actually have to show they got you the best price. So yeah, I mean, the, the intent behind it is to make things better for the uh, for the asset owners and, and the buy side and everyone else who's using these firms. Um, whether it actually will or not, and whether people are actually going to take the time to dig into these reports and say, well, look, my broker saved me X pence on this trade commission versus another one, um, I don't really know whether it's still quite a relationship-based market where they're saying, I'm just going to round one with this this guy because I know him and he'll do it for me. Um, kind of remains to be seen. I think it's probably more of a um, more of an interesting tool for the regulators, really, I guess, to ensure their rules are being followed. They're the ones who are actually going to be looking at this quite closely. But even they've said, you know, we don't expect everyone to be fully compliant with the first one. We understand that this is taking in uh, data from the previous year before MIFID 2 came into force, so it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Uh, so, you know, as long as you're making best efforts to comply, it's okay. Next one, I expect one to be 100%, I guess. But uh, So these these reports are actually due on Monday, I think. So it's, uh, okay. it's, it's squeaky bum time, as we say in the UK, for a lot of brokers. For another idiom, please. Another, another good idiom, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, from, uh, from Trade Tech, we've got another interesting story going up from Joe, actually, about... Um, a lot of people were talking about how big tech is going to enter the market space. And we actually wrote about this back in November, um, about how certain sectors of the markets, particularly asset management, given the shift to passive investing and away from active investing, are actually quite ripe for the Googles and the, the Apples and the Microsofts of the world to perhaps uh, enter the space. Um, people were speaking specifically in reference to Google because it's just started to launch a, uh, a marketplace for ad exchanges, which operates very similarly okay. to uh, the way an exchange works, essentially, you know, with you know, bilateral transactions and, uh, and a matching engine and that kind of thing as well. Um, so uh, I know that Joe 
had some comments. We, we're still trying to firm up whether we can use it or not from the actual tech people itself, but we'll link to that story in the in the piece so you can make up your own mind. But it's been something that's been spoken about, I think, for the last year or so. You know, is Big Tech actually going to make a play in the finance space because they have the resources, they have the the ability to hire the personnel. Um, it's not exactly unprecedented. You know, a lot of the Chinese firms uh, and the Indian sure. firms are getting into this. And, uh, obviously, you've got a lot of tech firms slash finance firms already in the West, people like PayPal and that as well, who actually did launch money market funds in the past, which didn't exactly work. Um, yeah. Outside of that, a couple of big announcements from Microsoft this week. Um, so they're partnering with Eagle to build a new investment data management platform on Azure. Actually, no, sorry, I can't say partnering. The, uh, the flag pulled me up on that. It has to be collaborating with Eagle. Uh, Collaborate. Oh. I know, wow. Down to the atomic level. Um, but, uh, so they're going to build out a new platform for investment data management. So for investment data management for investment managers. That's it on Azure. And also, Saxo announced on the same day that it's uh, signed an agreement to move its tech stack to Microsoft Cloud Service. Now this is something that I, I, I'd be interested on this end, and a bit cynical on my end here, but it had felt over the last year and a half or so, two years, that you know, obviously AWS was the big one, Azure was always number two, and then uh, Google Cloud Platform and IBM Cloud were have been making inroads, and that's the thing is, you know, I saw a lot of announcements coming out in the financial sector coming from Google, coming very much from IBM. IBM has been very, very aggressive in the finance and capital market space. I wonder if Azure kind of felt like we're we're falling behind here in the headline game right now. That we need to start getting some of these partners out, letting people know what we have because they are still the big, the second biggest um, cloud provider uh, to the financial sector. So I wonder if they kind of felt like we need to start making a little bit more public noise about this because you know IBM's rapidly gaining on us, Google's rapidly gaining on us. So you know we we kind of really need to kind of step up our marketing game in some ways. Do you think that's cynical? Or do you think that there's some validity to that? No, I think you're right. Um, and actually, I think it goes maybe even a step further than that. And, um, you know, Amazon is clearly the leader at the moment in terms of everyone just goes on AWS. From small buy-side firms managing $10 billion through to massive banks like JP Morgan and everyone else, they all use AWS. So they kind of, they kind of won that game, I guess, is the kind of the broader choice. Um, maybe what Microsoft is doing now with Azure is saying, okay, look, we can't beat that for sheer scale and, and scope of customers. What we can do is we can do these bespoke deals with specific firms and we can really highlight that. So Eagle, obviously, being a subsidiary of BMI Mellon is a big firm to announce something with. Saxo, big tech-enabled bank. Um, and I think maybe that's kind of the reason it's going. So rather than match AWS, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, look, you know, they've got the scale, but we can do something very specific for you for even from whether it's moving your tech stack to the cloud or partnering with you, sorry, collaborating with you to... Uh, Collaborating. Exactly. Can I get that right? Get a phone call from Boston otherwise. Um, to uh, <laughs> to put this very specific kind of um, platform onto the cloud for you as a result. Uh, and that can be an interesting kind of moment, I guess, you know, the, kind of the people you turn to for bespoke stuff versus the people you turn to for everyday kind of spinning up instances as you would for AWS. Okay, and there was also that great story about 427 and how they're using climate change data. I, was, I do remember yeah, that. That was cool. Yeah, there's some hippie right that I can't remember how it got past the interesting process. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, well, 
I will be writing an article specifically if any if any of the hack uh, the the flax are listening. I'm the hack or the flax. Hey, the flax are listening. I will be writing a story for the data publication specifically about climate change data. So not not ESG. Yes, it's a subset of ESG, but you know not no governance stuff specifically about climate change data this is the tough thing about doing a podcast when you're at home sometimes your brother walks in the room and is like skulking around trying to find something so <laughs> <laughs> taking no freaking privacy man i can't wait to get home <laughs> um, <laughs> then, uh, so, uh, i think but, uh, the final yeah. big story of the week was um uh, surveillance related. Um, I had a feature out on Monday, I believe, um, about how stock exchanges are using artificial intelligence and machine learning within their surveillance functions. Um, and then also later on this week, Gemini Exchange, the, the Winklevoss owned crypto exchange, uh, announced that they were partnering with Nasdaq Smarts to take that platform for surveillance, which is pretty big news, I guess, really. I mean, um, Bitfinex had previously taken Irisium, which is, I think, formerly Anchor. Um, but this is yeah. one of the biggest digital currency exchanges um, taking a major surveillance platform that's used by people like the FCA, for instance. You know, it's a really big player. Yeah. Um, we didn't cover it because, uh, for some reason, they refused to get back to us with quotes. But uh, you can read all that on the internet. Yeah, um, I saw the Bloomberg story, and uh, but you're, it's okay because your feature. It goes into a deep dive and it, it lays out specifically how the, the smart platform works and how it's using AI. So read out that feature because that's more value than just a news headline. It's, you know, the, the feature is a deep dive with, with, <laughs> with, with, with many, many big exchange executives talking to you about exactly. that. Actual so. surveillance officers, you know, rather than PR flags. So there we go. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, because I'm on vacation, I don't want to talk to you for too long. I look forward to getting back and going to the White Horse and catching up. But um, we're going to have this uh, consolidated audit trail snippet uh, for you all in just a moment. Uh, it was, I think, about an hour long, though, conversation. So beyond what, what was this snippet about? And why should people listen to the whole thing, I guess? Well, yeah, it was a really interesting webcast, actually. Um, you know, we covered the consolidated audit trail, or CAT, um, in depth over the last few months. And it was supposed to go live in November, it didn't. And the SEC's been more or less kind of silent on it since. Uh, and that's been a real elephant in the room. But none of us have been able, despite two features and multiple news stories later, to get any comment from the SEC. So uh, we went a little bit of a roundabout way, and we invited uh, a couple of people who are really kind of knee-deep in this. So Thomas Morkin, he's a partner, a partner at Buckley Sandler. Uh, he was actually at the SEC and wrote the original cat rule. Um, he spoke on the webcast. And we have Josh Beeson from Morgan Stanley, who's the cat program manager. And we also have Nate Call from FIS, who were one of the bidders for the cats. Um, literally just talking about how the SEC really now needs to step up and, and be the adult in the room, because a lot of this stuff is being done by committee and it needs a sort of a steady hand, uh, a steady leadership and actually it was interesting to hear somebody who was at the SEC saying I've never seen anything like this before, you know the whole industry is out of compliance with this rule and technically the original guidelines still stand and they're expecting broker dealers to comply this November um, but they haven't even built the platform yet, you know it's crazy. So uh, <laughs> listen to what Tom has to say, excuse my free bar at one point where I uh, mix up the speakers and uh, yeah, hope, and if you want oh, to Amateur hour. I know, exactly, well, listen you pay peanuts to get monkeys, right? But um, <laughs> so if you found it interesting, uh, the entire webcast is uh, accessible. You can go back and replay it. It's an hour long. It doubles into everything from the background and what the SEC is doing through to 
specific concerns about cybersecurity and personal information, uh, even then through to more deep in the weeds, technical stuff like how you can use it to broaden out your surveillance functions, your risk management, um, your data governance, um, sort of programs as a whole. So it's really interesting. I'll tweet it out afterwards from my Twitter account and we'll link to it in the story. Yeah, we'll also link to it. Yeah, we'll definitely link to it. All right, well, James, uh, I will see you in a couple of days. And uh, but uh, good job holding down the ship. But don't worry, the king is returning and and uh, will be there on Monday. Oh, thank God, I don't, we would have done without you. Um, <laughs> if you want to stay a bit longer, that's okay, it's not wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. All right. Well, thank you all, and uh, we have the Consolidated Audit Trail Snippet coming up, and then we will be back uh, next week with our regularly scheduled program. All right, thank you all for listening. Thanks, Chris. I think just to quickly pause my uh, I'm going to push up the first audience poll of the day, um, which I think will probably set the scene for the discussion going forward. So what I want to ask the audience is... Um, to what degree is the cats a priority for you at the moment? You know, is it one of the top items? Is it important but not critically? Have you done some work but not gearing up for it all, or are you not preparing for the cats at all? And I think just to come back to um, some of the things that were mentioned, I mean, this is a really peculiar situation. I mean, I can't think of many instances where a regulator has pretty much been silent on an issue publicly after such a flurry of activity before a deadline. And, and uh, you know, the, the uncertainty that was mentioned it then provokes. I mean... I know Chairman Clayton has urged market participants to get on with it recently, um, and the NMS plan seems to be following the alternative time frame. But uh, maybe Tom, um, you know, can can we expect this level of kind of limbo, I guess, to continue, or would you expect the SEC to start coming out and saying, okay, well, we're going to endorse the plan, or this is the new schedule? Um, it, it seems that they can't sort of stay silent forever, right? So yeah, um, so what's interesting is you see Chairman Clayton in his in his November 17th statement where he says we're not going to give the exemptive relief. You see he's he's reaching out to the SROs and saying I have staff available to hear. You know, if you need help, let us know. We want to help. And it sounds like potentially there's been a little bit more of a collaborative effort with the SEC staff. I think the problem is that this was given, handed out as a, a, a collaborative democratic process, handed to the SROs, and they all have different um, uh, agendas. And they all have different ideas of how, the, of their, how they want their data used and how they want to use others' data, since now this is going to all be in a, in a, in a repository, and they're all going to have surveillance obligations. So for the first time, you're going to have one, one exchange getting you purview into what's going on in another. So this might be that one time when the SEC really needs to step up and appoint, you know, what they've always uh, threatened is a cat czar, what's always been kind of out there in the ether, a cat czar from the SEC to sit in this room and to, and to, you know, make decisions on behalf of the SROs if the SROs can't make those decisions themselves. So I see this as Clay, you know, this, this was a, a, a bold step by Clayton in denying the exemptive relief. This is the first time they've denied the relief. They've given it. They've granted it in the past. Um, but I think it's going to take more of an of affirmative effort by the SEC to get in that room for there to be significant, m- much more prompt pro- uh, uh, progress in this process. Mm-hmm. Sure. And obviously, Josh, we said that you know, made, oh, sorry. I might add to that just a little bit. One of the questions that we hear a lot is, when is the SEC going to make their next statement? Uh, Translation, when are they going to tell us what the new dates are as kind of a presumptive close around where this exemptive relief request is going to go? And while that certainly could happen, and anything, of course, we share here is somewhat speculative, 
we also have to open the door to the possibility that they won't restate, that the dates will hold, uh, perhaps leniency is granted to those who are showing some progress. Um, Mifid II in Europe, by the way, comes to mind when I think about this to a degree, although certainly we're unprecedented here. There is a little bit of precedent in what we saw with Mifid II around leniency for compliance. Even if you're not 100% there, you don't 100% meet the dates. Um, so I, I think that's one possibility. The other thing I'd mention, very much along the lines of what Tom just mentioned, is that there's a governance issue at heart here that I think is problematic. Reg NMS creates a fairly healthy maintenance committee, and decisions are made by committee. But when we try to put together a large project like this, there needs to be somebody at the top that's making decisions, one throw to choke, so to speak, that helps push the thing forward. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that needs to change to, to really get some momentum behind behind CAD is, is change that governance structure a little bit at the, uh, uh, the Reg NMS level for, for this project. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that, that there's a governance issue uh, at, at the heart of the, uh, the uh, uncertainties um, that, that we're facing. Um, from a slightly more practical perspective, um, there have been a number of working groups that have been kicked off and, you know, to, to, to address questions um, that have been raised to, to the draft of the plan um, that we've seen so far. Uh, and my observation has been that the SROs have been very, very slow to uh, to, to, to take that guidance and, and, and to clarify for thesis cat um, what some of these questions should be, and they're really fundamental sorts of questions. Um, and, and so I think un, until um, we arrive at a governance situation, which is I don't know how you want to say it, more streamlined, uh, you know, one 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 throat choke, as you said, um, uh, you know, we're we're going to be in this situation where things move a lot slower than we hope they would. 